From the iHeartRadio studios in New York City, come two diehard fans of the greatest rock and roll band hailing from Hollywood, California. Dissecting all things Guns N' Roses and anything else in their distorted minds, it's Brando and Scotto. And this is Appetite for Distortion. And welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode 22. My name is Brando. With me, as always, is my partner in perfect crime, Scotto, Ian. What's going on, Loose Lips? It's a new thing every episode. You're you're gonna run out of ideas, <laughs> oh, I think. But I, I think I think that's a challenge. Yeah. Um, no, I'm I'm doing awesome, man. Been busy with uh, you know my stuff at Softrep, and uh, yeah, just staying busy, man. I enjoyed my July Fourth. Oh yes, as did I. I saw friends I haven't seen in quite a while because they they all have babies and are grown ups. Really? Oh, luckily most of my friends actually are not in that uh, category. Like my good friends. Yeah, you hang out in Chuck E. Cheese, and where all the other perverts are. Uh, we also want to. Um, I want to thank everyone who listened to the last episode, uh, Catherine Turman. Uh, she, it's just been a wonderful response. Every episode that we get, great responses from my GNR forum or just inboxing on Twitter and Facebook. Really appreciate it. And another big thank you, I guess the first one goes out to Dave Kushner for providing us such a great interview in episode 20. Uh, but Ultimate Guitar, ultimateguitar.com picked up uh, part of that interview talking about how the uh, Velvet Revolver fired Rick Rubin. So um, we've been getting some uh, some press, and we always we appreciate it. You know, you guys sharing uh, the stories between friends. And so that's how, again, we always say it. Uh, the more we're out there, the more we can provide you. And today, we provided you someone in studio you may be familiar with. No, it's not Ian. It's Art Tavana. What's up? You're here. I'm here. You have in a New face. York. You have a face. I do have a face. Which I wouldn't, it's yeah, I, I wouldn't recognize Art in the street because like even though i'm friends with you on your personal facebook and on, i follow you on twitter you don't post a lot of selfies unlike my friend brando over here who uh don't hate me because i'm beautiful <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i've seen a million photos of you behind a mixing board every photo i've seen of art is like obscured vision that i, I take different angles <laughs> but we're gonna uh, i mean art privacy uh, concerns guys it's privacy you know absolutely but, keep it secret but we're gonna give art his all his own episode uh, coming up, that's going to be episode 23, literally, in just a, a few minutes. Because uh, in a few moments, actually, right now, we're going to get on uh, Michael Lardy from Great White. Not to be confused with Jack Russell's Great White. No, there's obviously multiple versions of a lot of bands, and that's what we're going to get into. And, of course, it relates to Guns N' Roses and their variations of the band. And um, Actually, Michael has some history with uh, Guns N' Roses, so we're going to get into all of that with him uh Right now, I believe. Yeah. So for those listening, this is basically going to be a two-parter. Uh, this episode, we're going to focus on Michael, but uh, Art's going to hang with us, and uh, then we'll focus on what Art's. Yeah. Doing. Maybe he'll ask Michael some questions. Maybe. Just uh, you know, keep it keep it PG. I'm trying. <laughs> so I believe Michael's on the phone. So joining us for the first time on Appetite for Distortion, Michael Lardy, guitarist and keyboards for Great White. Um, also did keyboards for Night Ranger during the early to mid 2000s, uh, but still in Great White and was in Great White for the heyday. Uh, official GreatWhite.com at Great White Rocks on Twitter. Uh, so 
first thing, just glad to have you on with us. This is uh, this is very exciting. Well, thank you, guys. It's it's always great to uh, tell stories about what's happening now and certainly what's happened uh, in in our uh, rather interesting past. Oh, of course. I mean, that's why we're doing this. I mean, we're we're still you know. Uh, 80s metal and, and what bands that have survived and continue to kind of transform their image and w- how it works. And so a lot of it has focused on how Guns N' Roses ha- has done it. And it's curious whenever we find a, another equally uh, a band that we're both a fan of, how they have they have done it. So I guess I, the first thing is, how did you first get into Great White before we get into all the, the cool stuff? How did... You know, where, tell me, uh, you know, what's your blood type? Where were you born? Like, how did you uh, get into uh, the business? Okay, AB negative, Anchorage, Alaska. Oh, nice. Uh, okay, um, no, seriously. Um, it was very organic introduction into the band. I was working as a staff engineer at Total Access, and I had, uh, you know, whatever came into the studio, I was kind of like the guy who, you know, if they had their own engineer, then I would kind of oversee everything during the day and make sure everything was groovy, all the, the gear was working right or whatever, and anything they needed, I, I took care of that. And uh, as it turned out, um, we didn't actually have an assistant on staff. So when Michael Wagner came in with the band to record the first um, album, they had already done the EP in 82. And when they uh, came in and recorded the first album in 83, uh, I was on staff there. So I assisted Michael every day uh, during that process. And, you know, struck up a friendship with Mark and, and with Jack at the time. And uh, as it turned out, they found out that I could actually uh, do a little singing. So uh, I got, uh, you know, enlisted to do some background vocals on that first record and uh, was an assistant engineer on that record. Uh, they went off to tour with Judas Priest, uh, came back off the road, and their, and their manager at the time, uh, Alan Niven, uh, decided that, you know, after the, the band was dropped at EMI, uh, it was time to get a new record deal, which was not an easy thing to do at the time. Uh, you know, once once you, uh, you know, they weren't behind you, um, it, it just turned out that that was the, the intelligent way to go, you know, to get away from that label. And uh, Alan felt like it was a time to kind of reinvent what the band was about. At that time, the sound, as you can remember from, you know, the original album, was probably more akin to... Uh, uh, Judas Priest Van Halen kind of uh, mm-hmm. energy. And uh, we just kept looking at Mark's guitar playing and thinking, you know, this guy plays blues rock, you know, better than he, you know, so much more interestingly and comes from his soul as opposed to, you know, doing the eighth note, you know. And we just thought that, you know, that kind of was, that should be, you know, that's where he shines. I mean, I remember seeing him play. Uh, on the breaks uh, at the studio on the first record. He's playing like Alvin Lee and Johnny Winter, which I loved as a kid, you know. And I kind of like, wait a minute, this cat's that kind of guitar player, <laughs> you know? Mm. And just kind of filed that away as, as something. And so when they came back to uh, start recording demos for their second uh, record, which eventually became Shot in the Dark, uh, you know, they had the idea to put some keyboards on some of the tunes. And I just happened to be on staff there. And it was like, yeah, you know, I can do that, man. It's cool. So and some very thing. memorable keyboards, I, I might add. Oh, thank you. And it was just kind of, um, you know, very organic thing. I played some shows with them in 85 and 86, still all the time working at the studio, working in a couple of other bands of no consequence. Um, and then right before we started uh, recording Once Bitten, um, they all kind of turned to me and said, 
you know you're in the band now, right? I said, <laughs> awesome. You know, so it wasn't like anything I went after saying, I'm going to get into this group. You know, sure. it, it was just very organic how it all, it was very family driven. And I think that's the vibe that, that I can see as to why we've lasted and, and stayed together as we've, you know, always had a very strong family tie to the way we've done things. Yeah, I think that that a lot of things happen that way, where it's just organic, you meet the right people, and, and it's just the right fit. Um, the thing that I was wondering, as you're talking about the blues-based guitar sound, we often talk about, you know, with this being a Guns N' Roses podcast, the hair metal genre and what transcends what people call the glam rock or hair metal genre. I think a lot of these bands, and I want to hear your take on it, had a similar image with the big hair, leather, makeup, all of that great stuff, but... The sound of a lot of bands that were put into that genre is very different. I mean, the blues bass, uh, the blues influence of Great White is not heard in in a lot of these other bands, like let's say Poison or Motley Crue. You you guys had your own sound. Uh, do you, does it bother you that you get placed into that uh, that genre? Well, I mean, at that point, I think it's important that we get placed anywhere. But yeah, you know, it's always. <laughs> was always kind of a shortcut to thinking, you know, in, in my opinion about, you know, well, listen to the music and really, does this sound like Talk Dirty to me? No, I don't think so. You know, it's more like English blues. And to me, bands that kind of cop that from our era, there weren't that many, as you stated. Um, Cinderella was like that. Tesla. You know, the three of us kind of had that little thing. But there again, you know, you, you talk about Cinderella having the look that they had but playing the kind of stuff they played. You know, sure. It was much more blues rock, uh, you know, driven. Um, and, of course, you know, even going back to what is about the podcast, I mean, you know, Slash has got fantastic blues, you know, oh, yeah. influence all of his playing, you know. And certainly Izzy is, you know, the, the, um, the, the love child, I'm sure, of Keith Richard. You know, <laughs> it's like it's all about, it's all about blues, you know. With with that band, you know, even even though they they came across with the the edginess and the energy that they had, those two guitar players, you know, are definitely steeped in the blues. I think that's what is missing today in, in a lot of of rock, mainstream rock, is the blues, the soul of the blues. It's just melting your face off or attempts to melt your face off. Uh, so, what were your influences other than the blues? What inspired you to uh, become a musician? Well, you know, the the biggest thing that's always the signpost as to, you know, when something is an epiphany and strikes you in the head like lightning mm-hmm. and, and changes your whole life uh, was the Beatles performance in its Sullivan. I mean, I was five years old, and, you know, I remember the anticipation of looking forward to that Sunday night when they were going to come on. And, and it was just when it came out of the television, you're just watching it. it uh, I had it described to me by my parents as, your eyes got as big as saucers, <laughs> and we knew we had lost you. <laughs> you know, that was just the moment. And, of course, you know, my uncle, uh, you know, t- hipped me to the Stones and the Beach Boys. So probably when I was a young kid, it was really kind of that was my meat and potatoes for that thing. And then when I started to really grow and, and figure out, like, Clapton and, you know, Johnny Winter and all that stuff, and you think, well, where did they get it from? So you start to go back and you go, oh, oh man, you know, that, that guy's Lightning Hopkins. Oh, that guy's, uh, you know, Muddy Waters. Oh, that guy's Buddy Guy, you know. So you, you figure out where it all came from. And you see all the connection in the circle about about how that whole blues rock thing happened. And that was just akin to what my 
my tastes were in terms of, of like you talk about the the soul of of music. You know, something that makes you feel something. Yeah, I, I want to get into uh, any interactions you've had with Guns N' Roses, of course, and then what you're up to now, I, and just the, some of the more recent history with Great White from the stuff that happened in the 90s up until now. But while we're on the early years of Great White, I'm going to throw something at you that I'm not sure if it's been said before. So one of my favorite Great White songs is Face the Day. And when I heard that opening for the first time, and I'm, I'm 31 years old, so I got into this genre of music, you know, way after its heyday. Um, maybe it's it's from living with my mom for many years, and and you know how these baby boomers are into shows like Law and Order. But so I heard the opening, uh, that that opening riff of Face the Day, and it reminds me of that opening synth on the Law and Order theme song. Am I the only person who has noticed this, Michael? Well, that would be the first time anyone has made that correlation. <laughs> I have the and clips not, up if you want to hear it. If you want to hear no, what it's not impossible. I, be, I believe you. You know, I mean, there's just something about music that that connects us, and and however we get connected to it, uh, there could be a million avenues to get us to a place where we make the connection. Um, but no, I had never, I'd never heard that correlation before. I, I want to hear, if, see if Michael hears it because I heard it immediately. I, I thought he, uh, before I do, I know we're building it up now. I thought I'm like Ian is out of his mind, but then I heard it when I recorded it. So uh, we'll see what you think, Michael. Okay. So that's obviously your song. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Michael's heard this. <laughs> All right. So, and so then here's the Law and Order. Uh, it's like reverse. It's a little. Yeah. Hard. What about at the it's same like time? Reverse. Same time. Oh, that, that sounded terrible. <laughs> you have to sing it up a little bit, but it's it's similar. It hit me right when I heard it. I was like, "Oh, that's that's, that's wild." No, that, that the whole Law and Order thing uh, harmonically ascends, and the Face the Day thing descends. But okay. it's, kind of, it's kind of in the same cadence. Sure. You know? that's, that's the thing that I think probably jumped out at you when you hear it. Dun 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 dun. Yeah. Hey, I I lived with my mom, Michael, up and and my dad, but up until I was like 29, and my mom is a fan of like CSI and Law and Order and all that shit. So that's what I blame it on. (laughs) You're like, is Great White on this episode? (laughs) But now this means you have to make a rock uh, cover. You have to do a cover of this. You know that. Cover of of Law and Order. Yeah. Maybe you know. Maybe you have to pull a song out that's you know got strains of that in maybe in the breakdown or something that would be fun yeah get like ice <laughs> tea to guest on it is he law and order or the other one csi ice tea no i don't, I don't well, know which one he CS- is i think he's csi CS- always used you know like classic stuff i think the first one used um the who song didn't they oh who sure art yeah. i feel like you know pop culture better than me yeah. which one was ice michael we're here with art devana from la weekly as well I'm pretty sure it's CSI, actually, but okay. I don't. I don't know which like CS, which city, like Orlando. There's so many like, of them. Fucking Boston and <laughs> CSI yeah. elevator inspector. It's unit. one of those cities. Okay, yeah, fair one, enough. I think one of them did like Teenage Wasteland, um, and uh, who that's are the one. You? That's the one with with um, Ice T. Okay. Teenage Wasteland. Yeah. All right. Well, I was trying to reach for a great white Ice T collab. Or body count collab. <laughs> That'd be cool. <laughs> hey, Guns N' Roses were supposed to tour with NWA in the early 90s. That story just came out recently. So, oh, who, who I knows? Heard that. It just came out, I believe. Right? right? It was, uh, I saw that, yeah. Did you guys know there was actually an NWA song called Appetite for Destruction in 1991, I think? 
It rings a I, bell, actually. Yeah, no one even knows that because, like, I feel like I've always said this. GNR was the first gangster rap like band in a way because I feel like Appetite was such like a street rock, like it was such about like street culture, and nobody was do- doing that. So I think NWA in some way might have been influenced by Appetite, but then again. I can't really say that anymore. So it's possible, we, yeah. but we got to get Michael to do some uh, cool collabs. Have you ever been called to do a Sharknado movie? I mean, that, has that ever happened? <laughs> not, not at this point. I mean, occasionally they'll place uh, some of this stuff on a Shark you know, Week. You know, well, actually, we haven't been approached by Shark Week. What? But, <laughs> that's yeah, bullshit. That's don't you think? <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> you gotta. It's it's right there. It's right there. Everyone loves sharks now. Yeah, it would be perfect. Sharknado and Great White on the soundtrack. Yeah, exactly. Um, you heard it here first if it ever happens. And not only that, I mean, you know, for that for that song we just played, I mean, it would be great for, for sharks because, I mean, think about that. I don't want to face the day. You know, it's like I don't want to get in the water. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very that's true. That's a great song, man. So uh, I guess transitioning to, to the GNR stuff, I'm, I'm wondering what interactions did you have with the band during that those early years on the Sunset Strip? Uh, the actual years that they were playing before they got signed, not a whole lot. I mean, I know our manager, Alan, at the time was, you know, kind of uh, told by Tom Zutout about this band. And he basically came to Alan and said, man, I need help because, you know, I can't, you know, uh, get these guys organized and, and, and get this thing happening. And, you know, Alan, Alan's great at, at managing, certainly. And, uh he found, you know, he heard it right away when he heard the demos, you know, from Uzi Suicide. And he was like, uh, yeah, this is this is going to be something. So, you know, he marshaled everybody's forces and got them together and, and got them into the studio to uh, start doing Appetite. Um, so, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, something we were aware of that he was working on. But we weren't really aware of interactions until such time that Mike Klink you know the the, the producer yeah. on the record had um, you know worked with them pretty much five months straight, and I think I I can't say for sure. I don't know. No, there will be no disrespect to Mike at all, but I think they might have burned him out a little bit when it got time to mixing. So I think what happened was they uh, Tom Zutat wanted to go another way with that. I mean, you'd have to ask Tom and Mike how that whole thing exactly transpired. But all I know is um, they split the songs up and gave, you know, the uh, the cherry pick ones to Thompson and Barbiero, um, which was like Paradise City, uh, Welcome, uh, Sweet Child of Mine, and uh, and then Alan talked Tom and just let let me and uh, you know uh, he said let me and Michael you know take a shot at mixing this stuff, so. Uh, we did Brownstone, My Michelle, and Rocket Queen. Oh, wow. Um, well, they eventually decided to go for the whole record um, with Thompson and Barbiero because I think the boys all wanted to go hang in New York, which is great. Uh, but at the same time, I thought we did a pretty slamming mix of uh, Brownstone. And if, for your historians on um, on your, um, uh, you know, Guns N' Roses history, uh, the twelve-inch single, uh, I think of. God, I'm trying to remember which one this was, but I think it was the third release of "Welcome to the Jungle." The, the on the twelve-inch, the B side. If it has brownstone on it, that's our mix. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So you know, uh, I remember 
uh, Splash and Axel coming down to the studio and listening to it. And after listening to the mixes that were first tried with Mike, I think, um, they had heard what we had done. And I, I remember them kind of jumping up and down saying, yeah, that, that's nailing it. That's, that's how, uh, you know, we sound to us. You know, that's, that's the vibe. And, you know, uh, we went out to dinner and it was pretty low-key, but they, they seemed pretty excited about, you know, the fact that, you know, was, uh, what was happening in terms of mixing was approaching, you know, what they were as, you know, the sound of the band. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I heard the energy there and I just tried to put the faders up so it made sense. Uh, so I'm I'm glad to have had that interaction with them at that time, and uh, certainly uh, you know showed that I could do stuff outside of you know, the great white realm. And Michael, did you ever actually hear like the the early demos by GNR of those songs before you you mastered them or produced them at all? Yeah, even be, even before the actual Uzi Suicide released, um, I think I heard like rehearsal demo um, things, and I remember. Um, the guy who owned the studio um, listening to it, and I remember him saying something to the effect of, that sounds like any garage band on, on you know, on Sunset Strip. Right. And, you know, Alan and I were kind of like, I don't know, man, you know, there's something here. What do you think that something was? I mean, because there were a lot of bands, as you know, Ian brought up before, that sounded the same, and you guys were adding the blues influence. So what was different from when you heard because uh, we, as we've discussed, it took a while for that record to, to get launched and become what it, it's now. So, what what did you hear first that was different? I think it was just that that connection of so many things that uh, you know. I personally, I, mean, I know Alan loves about music. You know, the the, the Stones influence, uh, just the the the. It sounded so rough and raw and real. Yeah. You know, it just it just had all of those elements that came out in this beautiful noise, you know. And when you just really, you know, wrapped your head around it and got into it and let it, you know, overtake you as a listener, you know, to me it was just apparent and self-evident right away. It was just there's something magical about all the the uh, the angst and energy and. Um, you know, blues influence that's in there. That's just something special. You know, you just you, you just had to feel it. And I think uh, everybody that has appetite for destruction certainly felt that the per- first time they put the needle down. Yeah, I, I have to look up this mix of Sweet Child of Mine now because I've I don't. No, it's actually uh, it's Mr. Brownstone. Oh, Mr. Brownstone. I'm sorry because you yeah. said it was in the B side of Sweet Child of Mine, right? Yeah, I think so. I think that was a release. Okay, yeah. so I I'm wondering if someone's ripped it to YouTube. I would I would hope so. Um, what about the other mixes that you did? Are those floating around anywhere? Not that I'm aware of. I think, you know, once we we did those, I think we started to work on the other ones, and I'm not sure if, uh, in my memory, if I recall, we finished them because by the time we had gotten to the point of finishing them, um, they had already decided to go to New York and work with um, Steve Thompson and Michael Barbiero. Mm. I'm assuming you have to have like dad tapes floating around your house of of stuff we haven't heard or mixes we haven't. I heard. can't imagine the amount of stuff this guy has, like um, uh, the amount of bands yeah. he's played with. I can't imagine like you know what you have in your house. It must be some sort of like museum or a Costco of just rock and roll. <laughs> Costco of rock and roll on, <laughs> on uh, no, 
I don't have a lot of the half inches because, you know, obviously those half inch uh, analog tapes belong to, um, you know, record companies and such. But, you know, dads, cassettes, you know, I haven't thrown them away. So there's a couple here and there. Oh, man. Imagine if, like, I, I bet if you auctioned off some of that gun stuff. You can make a that, those are, That's his, uh, his kid's retirement fund. That's, you know, <laughs> his retirement money. <laughs> well, I have no kids, so I guess it would be mine. Oh, so there you go. <laughs> Even better. Uh, were you at the 1988 Ritz performance? Because that's um, who reached out to us, Melissa, who uh, your rep, who's super sweet. Uh, she said, were you at that show? or you before? What's your connection to that? Yeah, absolutely performing. I've been performing the band, you know, nonstop since 85. So that was... Uh, I'm gonna do Rain Man on you, February second, nineteen eighty-eight. <laughs> definitely February second, definitely, definitely. definitely, definitely. And what was interesting about that day is we had pulled a Westwood One truck up out onto the street. So in between soundcheck, I was running back and forth from the stage to the truck, to the truck, to the stage. Um, you know, getting sounds, getting levels on the you know the analog tape in the truck, and also getting you know soundcheck done. Um, for both bands, you know, so I was basically on site when I wasn't performing with Great White. And when G and R was playing, I saw them play a couple of songs mid-set. But after I was happy with the fact that we got you know, what we got, you know, in the truck. Um, but yeah, I was. I remember that day being a very long day for me. You were working it. That's so funny. It sounds like you know here at iHeart. You know, I uh, part of my job is to work some of the. The live events, including the iHeart thing in Vegas, which I never get to go. I'm low in the totem pole here. But I can't enjoy these shows even here because I'm always working it, checking the sound, or maybe there's a moment to enjoy a set. Uh, but the fact that you were working and in a band at the same time, that's just a man of, of many hats. And <laughs> Axel's the one with the hats and the bandana. But, I mean, that's 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 very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Not all the jokes are good, but they're there. <laughs> but they're there. Yeah, but they're there. So what do you? So um, what do you think of you know no, having known them since the days of Appetite to where they are now? Uh, do you, does it matter to you? Uh, I guess in two respects, because I don't know if you are on friendly terms for any uh, you know more than just like an acquaintance acquaintance uh, with the band. Uh, just saying, hey, you know, good for them. This is bringing a lot of people. Um, Happiness, a lot. The fans have wanted it for years. Uh, and I also, I, uh, the second part of that question is: Do you think that helps rock? Because a lot of bands like you, who are still doing it, you know, you can have the, the Skid Rows out there, the Rats, whatever version you want of LA Guns. Uh, it's difficult, and you can again speak to this. And a lot of the musicians we've spoke to, rock is really difficult here to break here in America. Overseas, I, I have to imagine Great White uh, people. Do you sell more tickets overseas? That's my long-winded two-part question. Well, in, in terms of how well we do overseas, you know, if you don't go back there every year or every other year, it's harder to do things completely on your own and do really well with ticket sales because they're very uh, – they pay very close attention to the fact that, you know, if you don't go back for four or five years, they're kind of like, you know, hmm. they, they, they like you to be there. But we did do a couple festivals last year. We were on Bang Your Head in uh, Stuttgart with Accept, uh, believe it or not. And that's what I love about German, you know, German or, or you know, Swedish festivals. Um, you can have anything and everything in terms of genres mm -hmm. on the same festival, and it all works. Every fan is there, and it was about a 35k, I think, was the uh, the attendance on that show. 
so, you know, we do fit into that whole thing. We can certainly do that. I mean, there's people there that, that do enjoy and, and certainly remember, um, you know, their connection with Great White uh, for a long time. So they, it's definitely feel the dreams. You know, if we play festivals, they will come. Um, as far as, you know, the fact that GNR is doing what they're doing now, yeah, I think it's great for rock because it kind of says, hey, everybody, you know, rock can be done on a grand scale. I mean, yeah. why, you know, why shouldn't this affect, you know, all of us in this genre that still want to go out and do things that are valid and, and play shows? I mean, uh, during a summer season domestically, we, we could, you know, do shows with like REO, Night Ranger, and and Great White and Slaughter, and and you know those festivals, and you know it's you know fifteen twenty thousand people, and and that should be you know an, a testament to the fact that this music still works thirty five mm-hmm. forty years later. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I always read these articles. I got this newsletter from this music critic named Bob Lefsitz. I don't know if you guys know who that no, is, but no. the the headline was "Rock is Dead," and the whole thing was this diatribe about how like rock and roll is like this outdated genre, and like nobody cares, the youth doesn't care about it anymore, and all they care about is hip hop and EDM and. All I ever say is like that's complete bullshit. GNR is an example of how that's bullshit. All the rock and roll bands are doing really well. It's just not on top forty radio as much as it used to be. And it's like people take that as just like it's dead. The genre is dead. It's just not. No, it's not in vogue with like twelve year olds at malls anymore. Haven't they even? There's like been like an article that rock is dead. I feel like every five years. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wasn't it a Robert Daltrey? Yeah. Rock is dead. I mean, they've been saying that forever. But you know, here, yeah. here you are still doing it. So I, that's what I, my my question was was the. Uh, the domino effect that it can have on bands like on Great White and and maybe even up and coming bands because they because I don't know there's a lot of people who know who Guns N' Roses are they're still out there and they have the face that uh, like do you find yourself um, getting new fans when you go out to these these festivals because that's what I'm, I'm reading a lot of people that are now just discovering Guns N' Roses because now they're back in the forefront so do you get that same kind of feel same kind of reaction. Yeah. And that's been that way probably for about the last 10 years, you know, since we've been reformed in, in earnest. Um, one of the things that blows my mind, you know, if you picture this, you're playing a festival, you know, you got 15K there, at, maybe, maybe it's at a state fair or something, you know. Uh, a lot of people there, and they're totally digging the music. And you can see, you know, the, the uh, chronolog- you know, chronological aspect of what your fan base would have been during that time. You can look at people and go, yeah, they, they probably had great white records in 87, 88, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then you look at their kids on their shoulders. And the thing that blows my mind, you know, continuously is those kids are singing the verses to rock me. And they're like <laughs> nice. eight, ten years old. And you go, God, we bless, you know, all of the, all the parents for passing the music down. But it's like, they seem to be getting it and getting into it. So it to me, it's like if you've done music that hopefully, you know, has a, a classic uh, edge to it, you know, if you're lucky enough, it, it lasts, you know, into new generations. And to me, that's one of the greatest compliments that, A, it's being passed down, and B, it's being understood by a new generation. Right on. Yeah, no, I agree. My dad introduced me to some of my favorite music, and then you go on and expand that with, with newer stuff that comes out and kind of form your own uh, your own thing of, uh, of uh, what your music is. You know, like my dad had me listening to Bob Marley and 
Jimmy Cliff and all this old reggae, and then also Pink Floyd. And was your dad a stoner? Was your, your dad was a stoner. He, he, he possibly was, you know. <laughs> but um, you know, and, and then as I got older, I got into metal. I got into hip hop. Sure. But all that stuff that I grew up on is still, you know, part of what I listen to, and and that's why great music really never will die. Um, all right, I got to get into this. I feel like you probably have to talk about this every single interview that you do. So. I, I do apologize in advance, but of course, the infamous nightclub fire and the effect that it had. Um, well, Melissa but, said not to talk about. That. Oh, don't. All yeah. right, I, I was not aware of that. I could, I could cut this out then. <laughs> yeah, no, if I mean, you don't want to get into it, that's fine. I, I honestly wasn't aware because she talked to Brandon uh, first. I'm just so. saying I read the email. So oh, whatever okay. you're, whatever you're, comfortable dude. With. Yeah. Not, not a problem. I, I will not get into it then. Um, but what I do what, think, what were you saying, Michael? I was going to say what I will interject is, you know. Uh, you know, Audie and I weren't there. Um, you know, our, our our current singer Terry Luce and our bass player Scott Snyder were not there. It's just one of those things. We have a documentary actually coming out in December um, from a show we did a couple of years ago, and it's like it basically tells the whole story. So, you know, I think uh, a mass audience is finally going to to understand the real story. And I, I feel like in the, in the documentary we told it in such a way that it's going to put all those questions that come our way in regards to the tragedy. So um, I'm looking forward to maybe getting back with you at that time. And saying, Gosh, okay. you know, that's perfect. And I, and I could yeah. promise you, as Brando knows, I'm not playing dumb or anything. Brandon was emailing back and forth, so I uh, I missed that. But I do want to get into, and, and we're looking forward to seeing that, I do want to get into the two great whites happening right now. That we definitely have to get into because this has been happening with a lot of bands of this era, you know, there were two LA guns. Luckily, the the most important members are now together again, and they're touring as LA guns, and we're no longer seeing these two bands touring. Um, but you know, there's also Jeff Tate's Queens Reich or whatever he's calling it now. Now we Jeff finally Tate's, do we have one rat now? Finally, one rat. Is Bobby Blotz yeah. is still doing. Oh his no, thing? I think he is still doing his thing. But oh we have Jeff God. Tate's Operation Mind Crime, and then you know, there's uh, Queens Reich. Uh, so now there's you know there is still Jack Russell's Great White and Great White. I mean, what's just your take on it being in this band? Does it bother you that there's two bands touring? And also, I would think for casual fans of the genre, uh, when they see that Great White is in their town, if they don't follow the band, they might think that they're still seeing Jack Russell or, or vice versa. Yeah, of course that does happen. But uh, the reality to the whole situation from a legal standpoint is. You know, Mark, Audi, and myself own own the name, own the trademark. We have licensed, um, you know, uh, the ability for Jack to use the name to make a living. You know, and I would never begrudge him because he was a part of, you know, a big part of, of that whole, you know, uh, you know, magic years. I, I guess you could call them between like '86 and '94. You know, it was kind of like, you know, Jack was absolutely a part of all that. Um, so I'd want him to be able to have that opportunity. Um, as far as the confusion is concerned, you know, it still exists out there. But at the same time, we're lucky enough to be doing 45, 50 dates a year. And I'm not sure how many he's doing, but I look at our list on, you know, on the website and I look at his list and I go, I think people know, you know, uh, the great white that they're seeing now. Yeah. So I want to mention the story where Ian and I met. This is our, our love, you know, show. Frolicking through a field right in front of the old Roseline Ballroom, seeing uh, Guns N' Roses, which at the time was, 
Axel and Friends. This was um, Bumblefoot and DJ Ashba. Ian and I knew this because we're both, we, we have a Guns N' Roses podcast. We're, we're both nerds. Uh, but th- there was this woman who walked by, saw the Guns N' Roses uh, banner all lit up. And I'm like, is that really Guns N' Roses, she asked me? I'm like, well, not really. So you kind of have to explain. So I guess my, my question is, because I think... Maybe not in a negative way, because uh, Slash and, and Duff, um, not keeping score, but had positive things to say about Chinese democracy. Uh, Axel may have been keeping score uh, a little bit, what, what Slash is doing. Maybe Snake Pit didn't do so well, and maybe it bothered him. I don't know if how Velvet Revolver did. These are a lot of questions we want to find out. So I guess what's your approach with former members, including Jack Russell, where do you keep score with that, or is everything, it doesn't matter? Uh, you're just focusing on the future of Great White because I know you guys have a lot of new things happening right now for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that that would fill my head up a little too much to try and keep score with that. I mean, obviously, you know, we we have to keep uh, aware of, you know, if there's any um, violations in terms of promotion or trademark sure. issues. Um, but that's about the only score we really, you know, want to try and keep because, you know, we worked very hard and, uh, you know, Spend some dollarinis on uh, on you know on legal to 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 get the uh, control of the name and such. Um, so I mean you know our business is our business now, and it really the focus we have more than anything is to you know think about the new record full circle, uh, nice. think about the tour dates we've got this year, all the promotion that we've got going with that. We just launched a. Um, a, a Boutique IPA beer nice. uh, called Once Bitten. Um, <laughs> nice. yeah, Perfect. So uh, you know it's 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 kind of like we're we're lucky enough to still be doing business, so we're right. kind of concentrating on that part of it. I, I was recently listening to an interview Jamie Josh did with uh, Ricky Rackman, and he was talking about Queensrÿche, mm. and when he heard that Queensrÿche got rid of Jeff Tate. His reaction was like, you can't fucking replace Jeff Tate. Like, he's the most amazing singer. I, I can't, like, I don't know if I'm going to be into this band without Jeff Tate. And he's like, I went to go see the current Queensryche with Todd Latore. And he's like, I'm not going to lie. I I think he's better than Jeff Tate. Mm-hmm. I like him even more. I'm wondering if Great White has gotten that reaction of people saying, you know what? I was reluctant, but this is a better singer than Jack Russell. Like a certain expectation, because like we've discussed a certain expectation, not just with the reunion for GNR, but just with Axel and Friends. So have you gotten a certain expectation? And if you're still doing it, you clearly have been uh, blowing people's minds away. Yeah, you know, it's. I think there's always going to be that that comparison because, you know, in, in embedded in your mind, uh, the sound of those particular songs. I mean, like, you know, even some of the, the album tracks, you know, like, Part the Hunter from Twice Shy, or you know, uh, you know, just Mistreater from What's Been. It's like there are certain sounds that you never forget about how that actually sounds because you, if you were a fan, you listened to that record, you know, you know, however many times you did. Uh, so that never escapes you. But I think it usually, you know, when you look out of the audience, you look at somebody looking at you, and and they're going, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> it usually takes about two songs and all of a sudden the, the the stern kind of you know closed off corners of their mouth turn into smiles it's like <laughs> they, they it. and you know which is you know fortunately and and gratefully we say a testament to the the quality of the songs too you know if if you have 
a singer out there that's delivering the songs in 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 a really great you know energetic way um you know the songs always win and and that's that's what i love about that do do you meet fans that dig the current frontman more than jack russell yeah that's pretty cool there's certainly uh that that contention of it and uh others you know will say well you know i I, you know, I read all the things I read online, and I think I understand. I'm going to give this guy a shot, and then after the show, you hear him, and you go, "Good choice with this guy," you know. <laughs> yeah. And that's cool, you know, because that's what we felt, and and you know, we just said, "Let's get somebody that's, um, you know, going to be dramatically different. Let's not do, you know, let's not do a clone." Okay, uh, that's that's that an interesting take. That, that was by design, you know. That's smart. That we that we didn't want to do a clone, you know, it gives a chance to uh, to go out there and, and reboot it a bit, if you will. That's smart, because there's a lot of different bands for a variety of reasons. You know, you have Journey. Uh, it took a while, but now, you know, they're extremely successful uh, to be able to do that. The and most successful, I think, that you can always point to was ACDC, AC/DC? Yeah. sure. Well, what now with Axel? Is that what you mean? Or, or the, <laughs> oh, I even meant Brian Johnson. I know. I, know. Yeah. I, was, I was being facetious. Hey, but they're still selling out arenas with Axel, and I'm sure. It's well, they were giving refunds. They were giving refunds for a while. Yeah, uh, people were upset, and I. And here's the thing, uh, Michael. I was, uh, you know, being obviously on a Guns N' Roses podcast, and I am an ACDC fan. I'm like, I don't know what about this Axel DC thing, uh, but I got tickets through a radio station uh, that I worked for, and I. I was blown away. I was blown away. And it's the same thing when seeing Axel and Friends. They didn't know the expectation. Um, I would see Skid Row now if they came around. I mean, what is it? ZP, ZP Thwart with the guy from Dragon Force. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, I love Sebastian. We both have seen uh, Sebastian a bunch of times. If, if the music is there, like you said, Michael, if the music is there, people, if you build it, it they will come. Kind yes, of thing. exactly. Um, I, I got to ask you about your time with Night Ranger, uh, early to mid two thousands. Um, I want to. I heard a, a rumor just from listening to Eddie Trunk that I want to hear uh, if you can clear up. So I heard nope. Eddie Trunk not too far, but maybe uh, last year or so interviewed Faster Pussycat, who apparently are very known for being hard partiers. And during the interview, they were like, "You think we party hard?" Night Ranger is the band that that fucking gives us a run, and they referred to them as like Ranger Danger, I believe is what they said. <laughs> is, is that them breaking balls, or are Night Ranger really hard partiers? That, I think that's kind of breaking balls. A little bit. <laughs> okay, so are you guys you the know, opposite? <laughs> well, I will say back in the day, you know, uh, when they were you know at their peak between like eighty four and eighty nine, you know, before Damn Yankee started. Um, I, I will say absolutely they had their time with that, you know, uh, that would be, you know, a lie if I said any differently, but, uh, <laughs> now I think they're more interested in just, you know, I mean, most of the guys in the band are 60 plus, you know, so, but they're still out there kicking ass and you can't do that. Well, Axel was just out with uh, Tom Jones, and Tom Jones is in his 70s, isn't he, until partying until 6 in the morning? Didn't that just happen last week? (laughs) So I guess there are some special 60-year-olds out there, but otherwise, I'm with you. Just get a nice book, a glass of wine, watch The Simpsons, and go to bed. (laughs) You know, Jack, with all his, Jack Lights, with all his energy, you know, he is definitely, uh, you know, uh, all about uh, doing a great show, and, you know, he, he... is real focused. He works out and he does what he does. He has so much energy and and he doesn't get on when he's on stage doing his thing. 
it doesn't look like a guy that's in his early 60s, hmm. you know? I got to hear, Just, though. Do you have anything about uh, – I'm oh, sorry, would you finish with that story before I so rudely interrupt? Yeah, no, no, we're, we're good. Okay, <laughs> all right. I have, uh, I have Tourette's, I think. Uh, I got to hear about Black Flag, though. Uh, your your time with uh, Black because I'm a huge uh, fan of Henry Rollins and the old school punk movement, which is dead now, which stinks, but whatever. Yeah, it was interesting with that. I the first gig I had when I moved to LA when I was 19 and 78. Yeah, um, I looked around and realized there it took a while to you know find a band to actually play with. So I thought, well, what can I do? Okay, I know how to engineer, so let me get a gig at a studio and. You know that that'll that'll pay the rent until I can you know find the right kind of people to play with. Uh, so I, I went to work at this place in Hermosa Beach called Media Art, which was right down on the ocean, about a block away from the beach. And just up the the block was an old church that was converted to offices. And in that church was SST Records. Mm-hmm. So you can see, you know, if you know about the SST record legacy, you know that it's not just Black Flag. For those who aren't aware, like myself, yeah. clearly, uh, who else was that that, that um, well, right there? Well, it was there? like uh, Husker Du, the Minutemen, the oh, okay. Sacrin Trust, um, you know, just a lot of bands. I think the Mentors were on there as well. Um, and it was just like a cottage industry, the whole punk movement in Hermosa Beach. Um, so, you know, since it was just like falling out of bed for them to, to take the artist over to the studio, we ended up, uh, you know, working uh, with them. And there was this one engineer there, his name was Spot, and he was just a crazy guy, and he loved working with the punk bands, but he couldn't do every single one of them. So if he had done a whole album... You know, in like six or seven days, it would be, uh, you know, he'd be burnt out and it'd be like, can you do the next one? It'd be like, yeah, man, it's cool. You know, even though it was completely outside the wheelhouse of my musical taste, um, I was just, I was an engineer on staff. So, you know, next one, next one that came in was, you know, a, a Black Flag record. Nice. And I, I, I believe historically I did one with Dez, one of their original singers, and then one with Henry. Okay. Yeah. Pretty cool, man. That's awesome. Um, so b- before we wrap up here with, uh, I was thinking the talk earlier of is rock dead and people saying rock is dead and, and you still touring, any new music that you're listening to or any any stuff that you think our audience should check out who, who like Great White and who like Guns N' Roses, of course? One of, the, one of the bands that I love that I got hip to in 2012 and they just become more and more ballsy and edgy and, and cool was Hailstorm. Nice. Love Hailstorm. I mean, they cover a couple of GNR songs off their first, uh, what, a reanimate EP or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that girl can sing her ass off. And, you know, the, the drummer is a fantastic musician. I mean, the whole band's great. And uh, I ran into them uh, at, believe it or not, the machine shop in Flint uh, in 2012 and met them and they were it turns out they were huge great white fans so nice. you're like whoa okay that's cool um and then just recently we did the the uh we did some gang vocals for um two of the songs on our new record um in nashville and uh she has since moved down uh to nashville uh recently so we got her rachel from skid row um 
Kenny Gennaro, the drummer for Pat Travers, a bunch of Nashville technicians and other musicians. Uh, and it was great to see her again. I mean, obviously, it's had some success. And uh, it's, it's just great to see them carrying the torch of, you know, high-energy rock and roll. You know, so I would I would definitely recommend to people to check that out. And it's good to know Lizzie Hale lives in Nashville, so now I know where to uh, stalk her. Didn't <laughs> <laughs> hear it from me. No, um, of course, of course not, of course not. So no, no, it's actually a great example. I've often used the uh, hailstorm as the example on here. So same hey, wavelength. Yeah. Hey, man, we we totally appreciate you coming on, and uh, we're looking forward to hearing more stuff with Great White. Um, is there anything else you're you're up to and any projects you're working on before we uh, wrap this up? And how can we find you? How can the fans reach out? Well, the uh, the website is officialgreatwhite.com, and uh, it's got all the information about the new record, Full Circle. And uh, our latest track is our first release from the, the song is uh, Big Time. And if you like the vibe of Face Today, I think you're going to like that song. That's cool, man. It's, it's hard to get plays on on the new stuff right because of the fact that you know even at Sirius XM there's hair nation and all that but they don't play new stuff um you know and of course we all know MTV and and all that is dead so like how do you as a touring band who's known from the decade of the 80s like get this new music out there to people well we're getting lucky I mean Eddie's uh spinning the tr- the, the new track that's awesome uh, yeah we're starting to get some stuff you know Luke Carl is a a huge fan as well, so we're real lucky there. Uh, we're getting some action there. Uh, terrestrial radio, uh, we're getting some plays here and there, and uh, you know a lot of people are playing it. You know, it's it's on uh, the YouTube channel, um, official Great White TV. Um, so I mean, it's getting out there, and uh, you know people are starting to recognize it at the shows. So that's always pretty cool to see that whole thing come from. You know, writing the song to actually performing it, and then people being hip to it. It's that 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 part of the whole musical chain is pretty damn cool. And the next thing you got to do to really promote, you got to get into a Twitter fight with Ian Ziering from Sharknado and get yourself on the sixth one. You have to do that, please. <laughs> How many sequels do they have? I now? think the fifth one is like this weekend or or something. They made the fifth one. And I don't Shark know. Week is this month. I mean, those are. I mean, Shark Week is cool. I mean, after the first Sharknado, whatever. I'm now I'm going off on an angry tangent, <laughs> <laughs> but I still hope it happens for you. Thank you. <laughs> that is cool though that that Eddie is playing the song and uh, Luke Carl. The thing with Luke Carl, man, I I just want to hear him open up about kind of getting to bang Lady Gaga. I mean, that's what he's known for, <laughs> and he won't fucking talk about it. I want to hear all about that because you're a pervert. Okay, dude, well, come I'm on, not, it's Lady Gaga. I'm not sure if other half would like to hear that story. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's his claim to fame is dating Lady Gaga. He seems like a cool guy and, and he knows his his rock, but that was uh, my claim to fame. But yeah, I mean that's a cool claim to fame to have, but he's he's pretty like tight lipped about it when he put out that book, The uh, Drunk Diet. I think he was on like Fox News, he was all over and he would not he would not answer a question about Lady Gaga, which I mean it's classy, but come on, we all <laughs> want to hear about you fucking Lady Gaga. He wants a dirt. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I've been lucky enough to have, I guess, a claim to a small amount of fame with Great White, but I suppose my, my, my number one encounter was getting to meet Ringo. Oh, yeah? 
Tell us yeah. about that. Was it, is it, was it, did he refuse to sign an autograph? I'm warning you with peace and love, but I have too much to do. So no more fan mail. Thank you, thank you. And no objects to be signed. Nothing. Uh, anyway, peace and love, peace and love. I didn't even ask you because I knew about that. <laughs> uh, oh, it's one of those things. A friend of mine used to uh, do the uh, hosting for private sessions. You remember that show on Annie? Private sessions. So yeah, she it, had it, it rings a great, bell. Yeah, great people on. You know, they would come on and do interviews, and then the bands would play like four or five tunes throughout the hour and a half show that it was on. Anyway, she used to be on uh, BCM, I think, in Boston. Uh, Lynn Hoffman. Sure. So he hosted the show and knew that I was in Jersey. We were getting ready to go to Europe, so we had like a, a couple of plays around the East Coast before we took off for Europe in '08. And called me up and said, "You got a day off?" And I go, "Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do." He goes, "You should come into the show today." And I said, "Sure, I got nothing to do." So, took a cab across the across the tunnel and went in, into uh, Midtown where A and E is, and uh, came in. And we're sitting in the makeup room just talking. And all of a sudden, in comes Dave Stewart, and I'm like, "Oh man, that's cool," you know. Mm-hmm. And right behind that was Ringo, and I got I looked at her like, "Holy fuck!" <laughs> so, um, so I mean, having you know the Beatles be such a a, a signpost of my life changing, um, it was a really big deal. But they orchestrated it somehow as he was walking out of the interview and doing the show, for him to stop uh, just long enough to take a picture. Nice with me. Yeah, yeah. that that's usually and, how it works sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you know, and Ringo has always been so smarmy and so sarcastic. He says, "I said, man, I just want to thank you, man. You know." Your band and everything you did as a drummer, you know, uh, basically changed my life and made me become a musician. And he goes, "Don't blame me." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, man. I um, I would have that same thing though, where if so, he's known as not wanting to sign autographs. Where I wouldn't even want to ask at that point, because like, all right, I'm the biggest Motley Crue fan. Have met Nikki Six, great guy, but Tommy Lee is known. To, he he publicly wrote a whole thing about like I don't owe taking a picture with you. Doesn't he punch people? He's done that before. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he wrote a whole thing about how he's not you know he doesn't feel that he owes a picture with you. So if I do, and I've met I've heard Tommy Lee's a great guy from like Anthony Boza who's been on the show and co-wrote his book. Sure. But if I do happen to meet Tommy Lee, I'm just not even going to ask. Like I wouldn't want it to ruin. The experience asking for a picture and then him being like, fuck off. Well, no. we'll say right now, uh, Michael, when you are in New York, when you're touring and uh, you come in studio with us, we will ask you for a picture. Hopefully that's okay. <laughs> well, we'll put it in your tour writer, okay? You, you can have 10 pictures, 10 autographs, whatever you need. All right. Awesome. Very cool. I appreciate oh. your your uh, your time. Like, I mean, you know, just, I th- what did it say? I think in your description that it was um, that Melissa sent that you were a great sense of humor. I, I believe that she wrote. I can't bring up the email, and uh, she was not lying. Oh, well, thanks, guys. No, I mean the, the show is great. I mean, you cover some 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 great ideas. You know, interjecting. Uh, you know, the the guests that you're talking to, and you know, all the tidbits about uh, Guns and Roses. Uh, really cool podcast, man. Thanks, man. And I think people will really appreciate hearing your involvement with GNR because I'm a huge fan and I was not aware yeah. of you being involved in the mixing. So as as Brando says pretty often, we're putting together the pieces of this puzzle of what has made up the history of this band. And that's definitely a piece of the puzzle I never heard before. So uh, I'll give you one more before I go. Let's do it. 
Do you remember the first uh, MTV Music Awards they did? Sure, I, I remember footage of it, yeah. I mean, as we've yeah. said before, I'm 31, so I wasn't there in the heyday, but yeah. 1988. Well, they, yeah, yeah, it was September, I want to say 7th, 88. Okay. And I really, I really am a rain man. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> Three, what yeah. was it? 232 toothpicks, right? <laughs> yeah, no, and the, and the barometric pressure was 29 points. <laughs> no, um... They, uh, Alan had asked me to come in and do uh, the live broadcast audio mixing, so I was in the truck when they were performing. It's awesome. I've always yeah. said that's the best. That's the best performance of Welcome to the Jungle, at least that I've seen on camera. I just remember Dick Clark standing in the wings when the camera hit on him. You know, in the truck, you can see every single angle. You know, as as uh, I was mixing it, and him just at the beginning of the song, looking completely panicked. <laughs> the first chorus, he was like cool it's happening it's going off you know he was like really happy um uh, but an, another addendum to that story after the performance i went back into the venue to to watch a few things and was hanging out with some people and i'm in the stairway and i come across uh jed nelson and robbie robert downey jr very lit up and that's all i'm <laughs> about that and that's, but they were like 21 22 years old and um we were just talking shaking hands and blah 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 and axel comes bounding down the stairs and he goes Hey, man, a friend of mine called and said it sounded really good on TV. Thanks, man. And then ran away. I'm like, cool. <laughs> At least he gave you a thank you note, yeah, so to speak. So I, guess I, I guess that's a good thing. Yeah. So, Art, you would say that it was the best performance of Welcome to the Jungle as opposed to the last time that Axel did the MTV uh, Music oh, Awards? Oh, no, yeah, oh, definitely. No, I mean, oh, I've no, always had that. this that moment in 88 at the MTV VMAs, had they dropped the ball? Had Axel like had a bad a bad moment or something had happened during that performance, that could have been it. Because that was like their moment in the like that that, that like the moment where they could have been the biggest band of all time, or just gone back to like the Sunset Strip and they fucking killed it. So no, they totally killed it. It was like a parent, you know, sitting in the truck, just going, "Man, they got it. It's all good." <laughs> all thanks to you. All thanks yeah. to you and your van controls. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, once again, you could visit uh, Michael's band, Great White, at officialgreatwhite.com, at Great White Rocks on Twitter, and, uh, yeah, next time in studio when uh, when Great White's in town. I'll look forward to it, guys. Thank you so much, Michael. We re- re- uh, really appreciate talking to you today. Thank you. You as well. Have a great day. You Bye-bye. too. Great guy, uh, I, and I really do hope that we get to see Michael in studio oh, at yeah. some point because Great White is still doing gigs all over, whether it's on Long Island or in the city. Um, and it's funny he mentioned doing shows at the Slaughter. I know Great White has done some shows at the Slaughter since, uh, as I've mentioned before, you and I know Mark, Mark uh, great, great dude. Um, but yeah, there's just, there's just still a market out there, and even though. Um, Maybe the the new CDs, you know, and people are like, oh, does anybody buy CDs anymore? I still, I'll still buy hard copies of things. But even though the new music might not be what's selling for these guys, whether it's the casino circuit or just playing small venues on on weekends, because Mark has even told me, if you look at Slaughter's tour dates, they they basically are, you know, flown out to a casino on the weekend and they'll sure. play like two dates, but they're able to make a living doing that. And I think, you know. Even though you might not be playing arenas at it anymore, even though you might not, you know, like Slaughter had number one hits uh, and multi-platinum albums, the fact that you could still make a living from a song or several songs that you wrote in the late 80s in 2017 
playing gigs. I think that's pretty fucking cool. No, absolutely. And as we wrap uh, this episode up, and unless you have anything else to add, my dear Ian. <laughs> No, check out Great White. Uh, I'm, I'm, I haven't checked out the new stuff. I'm looking forward to hearing it. I just got uh, listen to some of the stuff that uh, their their rep sent me. So I what do you think? Of, what do you think of the new singer? It sounds sounds good. Sim yeah, yeah. different, I guess, from what he was saying. Then I mean, it's it's hard to say because I was never like not as much as I am, of course, with with Guns N' Roses, where Jack Russell's voice invoked something in me. I'm like, sure. if the music is good, it's good, and it's still it's still good. Then I'll ask you one other thing. Does it sound like a 80s band, like still making that type of music, or does it sound like an 80s band trying to adapt to 2017? How about you and the audience make a judgment for yourselves? So I'm not kind of swaying you either way. Okay. I don't think either listen, is, a is a bad thing to say. Listen you know? to Full Circle from Great White. We'll do. We'll How do. about that? There's a fucking plug <laughs> for you, Michael. <laughs> I'll check it out, man. So, uh, Art Tavana coming up uh, next episode. But in the meantime, I actually, because I always end the episode saying, I don't know the next time we'll see you. Uh, like Chinese democracy talk, Axel talk about Chinese democracy. Next time will be soon. Well, it's actually going to be soon this time. So we'll see you soon. You've been listening to the distorted minds of Brando and Scotto, dissecting all things Guns N' Roses on Appetite for Distortion. Follow the guys on Twitter at The AFD Show and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The AFD Show. security, I'm going home.